Hey, listeners, this is Marsha Epstein, and this is Talk With Me, and we are on lawrencehits.com, and I am in Lawrence, Kansas. You never know for sure where my guest is going to be, sometimes at my table with me, sometimes it just sounds like that because we're talking, but we may be at a big distance or a smallest distance. And one of the things that's funny is how there are these different kinds of connections that that get revealed. (laughs) This person knows this person. No, really, that person's somebody that I know. Um, Even with people that that we didn't start with a direct connection. A lot of times I'm talking to, in particular, with the writer guests who have been suggested by another writer who was suggested by another writer. And, And I sometimes have to think about have I actually been in the room with that person because we've had so many conversations in different ways. And thanks to social media, often pictures from events are shared. And I, I do know whether I was at an event or not, but sometimes there's such closeness that develops through social media that it seems like we should have been in the same room. And so maybe we were, even though we weren't. Anyway, ramble, 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 because I'm going to talk today with somebody who is one of those connections of connections. So for example, on Saturday, a week ago, a dear friend of mine produced, premiered a play that he wrote and started. And and because of the variety of things in this play called Run, the musical, which is written by and was starring Michael Timothy Deeker, because of a, for a variety of reasons, I invited two Kansas City friends to come with uh, and, and experience a play if they could. And those two people are Jeanette Powers and Ejno Martin. Jeanette, people know from the Uptown Arts Bar and Prospero's Books and all kinds of publications that not only her personal writings, but also her being one of the people stimulating anthologies of different kinds. And of course, the pop poetry series that started with, we're going to do a poetry book a month with new poets. And people going, no, 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 that's impossible. And yet it's very possible. And Jason Reberg continues that tradition. Um, and Jean Martin, who is a poet, who is a, the publisher of EMP, his press, where he's featuring, as Jeanette described, freaks and femmes. Anyway, Jeanette and Ejno and I are, were together and at this play and in talking before then, I am picking brains saying, I have this other friend who is writing fiction and he's been published for academic writing. He's actually a scientist, but has this cool kind of historical fiction based on much research about some issues and blah, blah, blah. And so I just, I asked Jeanette and Ed, just said, so do you guys know anything about publishers for fiction? Because Chris is having a really hard time um, finding somebody interested in this type of work. And I had actually reached out to Denise Lowe, who is a poet, former poet laureate, Lloyd of Kansas asked her the same question, and she kind of said, publishing fiction is hard. And Jeanette kind of racked her brain, and she goes, oh, you know who to talk to? John Bidwell. Find out what his experience is. And in that small world of how things come around, John Bidwell, welcome to talk with me. (laughs) Thanks, Marcia. It's good to be here. 
So this is that was a true story, and it was so interesting to me. Like, what was the chance that she would mention somebody that's like, oh my goodness, I do get to talk with this person? And we're not going to talk about publishing fiction in general right now. We're going to talk about you and and what you're doing. So let's start with you telling our listeners a little bit about you. Well, um, I'm an artist and a photographer and a um, most recently a science fiction author. I've been a poet, and that's how I know all those guys. And I think it was Brandon Whitehead who directly first mentioned the show to me. And, yeah, I love those guys and give props to all of them because, yeah, yeah um, they are the true artists. Um, yeah, and I can't let you – I have to interrupt – Interrupt, interrupt. Brandon Whitehead, if you are listening, we are so sorry that your early works vanished in the rain. And we hope you'll be back at the mic with whatever kinds of performing you like to do because we love you. Okay, I'm done. True story. We do. We do love Brandon. Brandon and Jeanette are two of the best writers in the city and two of the best writers that I know. Love those guys. Um, yeah. But yeah, I. I, I knew the poets and I know them and their friends and I just, um, I gave up on the poetry scene uh, years ago and, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a photographer and I've known more for that than anything else and have contributed some, quite a few photographs to several of the pop poetry books and other books that were published in the past. And, um, yeah, I've been involved with those guys, but I, I have always kind of stood on my own and never never gotten too far into the poetry scene because it's poetry and you know i am not quite such the romantic at heart and so yeah I, in the last four years i went and lived down in tucson arizona and then moved back here last year and then that during that time i decided to do something i always always wanted to do and write a little fiction a little science fiction and it um yeah it turned from one book into about one thing and uh, three books about something else. And now those three books are the first three in a six part series. And yeah, I've uh, finally got them up on Amazon um, Kindle and they've been on Amazon Kindle since they were originally published in March. I self published them and I have been following a marketing platform that allows you to, you know, what these other successful authors that I'm following are doing is giving a couple of books away for free. And my news is that Amazon finally price matched iTunes and Kobo and Goodreads and Smashwords and priced my first two novels for free on Kindle, which is huge. Um, talking about publishing again. All right. And you mentioned just, I want to clarify that you were in Tucson and now you're here, but yes. you didn't say where here is. <laughs> here is Kansas City. Here is Kansas City where I grew up and I am back, um, moved back for family reasons. And um, uh, specifically, I'm in the Rosedale area just by KNED over on just like two blocks from the Missouri side on the side of the line. Yeah. So photography and writing sci-fi in terms of your arts at this moment in time, those are the two big ones. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I would actually say more 
I, I play piano, but that's really just for me. I just write country songs on the piano and kind of mess around, and I've been doing that for five years. Um, and I do more of that and work on the sci-fi at this point than photography. And I've kind of I've taken uh, I went through all my photographs that I took digital photographs between 1999 and 2017 the other day, and it was 59,000 photographs. Um, So I've got quite a bit of work that I I just kind of sit back on my laurels at this point and (laughs) sell sell that to clients. But I haven't been doing a lot of new stuff lately. I've I've really been, uh, yeah, I wanted to get into something that could really affect a little bit more cultural change at this time in our history, which I think is needed. And I think that photography only goes so far to do that. And so I, yeah, got into the, got into the fiction, the science fiction specifically. Uh (laughs) And I feel like I should say, remember to tell people that I'm writing under the pen name, which is my real name, but it is not John Bidwell. It is John Lee Grafton. Oh yeah. That is kind of important if people want to find your books. (laughs) Yes, and the website is the website is just johnleegraftonbooks dot com, okay. and yeah, that is that is a, a small a small detail. Yeah, and will your books be in print? In they will be in print. Okay. Yeah, they are in digital format now, and. Uh-huh. Again, the reason I did that was because of the startup cost, and mm-hmm. I just formed my own little one-man publishing house, um, John Lee Grafton Books. Um, it's like a little one-man LLC, and yeah, I just do everything from the Facebook marketing to the actual writing to mm-hmm. um, all the marketing and everything, and I like having that control, and um I am planning to do print-on-demand paperback books, but I am just giving that a little bit of time until I'm. I know I'm making a couple of changes and in covers and a couple of other little detail changes, and so I'm waiting for those to come through before I put out the paper books and make them available. Yeah, I'm one of the few people that at least says it out loud that still really likes reading on the page. <laughs> No, I get it. I just talked to a, I hilariously just talked to a friend of mine in uh, Tucson, and he like, and he is he's actually a younger he's younger than I am, but he just like many of my friends, my my stepsister up in Buffalo, being another one who just like hate ebooks and Kindles and the idea of reading on their phone with a vehement passion. So. I totally get it. And, you know, my friend Adam was like, I feel like I'm being tortured by my phone. Like I'm reading this because I love you, but I, I hate reading on my phone. <laughs> and, you know, so I, you are not alone in wanting an actual paper book in your hands. That's cool. I, I appreciate that, that I'm not a total freak in that. Because I'm also the person who, when somebody tries to hand me a flyer about their performance or this or that, I'm like, Tell me how to find the information, but I really don't need the paper. <laughs> so, so I I don't hog paper in all the ways. I'm not a total tree killer, but when it I comes to reading, I, I like the page. And and I know, I mean, with a with a science fiction um, work, I know there would be an advantage in reading it from start to finish, as opposed to reading this and reading that. But I will admit that also my love of of paper books is because 
a lot of the books that are very special to me are poetry collections. And totally. I, I love being able to get that new book from this person who I've talked to or heard at a reading and then flip here and there as opposed to have to read it in sequence. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, to the defense of ebooks, I will say that, you know, they do have hyperlinked glossaries and terms and bookmarking. And you can, you really can, once you get in there and spend a little time on mm-hmm. like the Kindle app, you can figure out how to make it work like a regular book. But excuse me, the one thing you're never going to replace is just that analog warm feel of paper in your hands. Yeah. And I, yeah. I totally get it. And I support that. I've just, I'm not, I'm not quite there yet because I'm a total perfectionist and perhaps overly anal or attentive, but I just want the paperbacks to look perfect, but they are laid out uh-huh. and I'm just waiting to do a little detail, few changes on the covers and I would say they will be out this fall and available and I'm going to have them in a couple of bookstores. I'm hoping right. a bookstore in Lawrence and you know the bookstore in Kansas City where they'll be. You can mention them. I would assume the bookstore in Kansas City is Prospero's Books. That is correct. And then yes. I'm Raven has hoping. Raven Bookstore is our local Lawrence, Kansas independent bookseller under new ownership of poet Danny Kane. <laughs> right. And that is exactly who I was planning to hit up. Um, cool. Go in there with my hat in hand and a couple of self-published sci-fi books and see if those guys are willing to take me on. But hopefully I can uh, come up with a good argument. Yeah. And they will yeah. say yes. Yeah. I might and so, mention that to Danny because I have some other things I need to talk about with him. <laughs> that'd be awesome. Yeah. I'd love it. Yeah. So books, and, and it makes sense that you, with a long um, history of being a photographer, even if it's not what you're creating at this moment, that, that the appearance of your books would be important to you. I get that. That makes sense. That's totally. And I think the you know I think the life of a photographer has bled into my uh, bled into my writing because I've everyone who reads the books tells me they feel like they're reading a movie, and I love hearing that. But there, I do have a lot of uh, pretty vivid imagery and description. You know, I really try and focus a lot on the the Kansas landscape where the books are set. Um, mm-hmm. The books are set in Lawrence. I mm-hmm. can't remember if I mentioned that already, but yeah, they're set in Lawrence in the future in 2082. So you haven't, I don't think you mentioned the name of the three that are written so far, the name of the series. So let's start there. The name? Yeah. Okay. The name of the series is The 18th Shadow, and that is composed of books phase one, which is Dawn of the Courtesan. And then phase two, which is voices in the stream, and phase three, which is absorption. And the first book's a little shorter than the second, and the second book is a little bigger. The third book is the biggest, um, and I give the first two away for free now, and I intend to make that my policy forever. Those two first novels will always be free. Um, because I want to give my work out, and I understand that you know not everybody always has money to buy 
uh, by literature. And as a self-published author, I want to offer it in any way I can. I used to, uh, back in the day when I was a photographer and I did the art fair circuit, I would be doing 15 shows a year and traveling around the country. I would always sell my prints made on the same material with the same pigment-based inks to my clients for about half the price of the guy of the photographer next door and I, I got unending amounts of flax from having my prices be too low, but the same principle applied and I think if you know a uh, waiter or a busboy wants to buy one of my prints, they should be able to have something for twenty bucks as yeah. opposed to you know. Um but so it's kind of it, like Maybe somebody should come up with a plan, a business plan for artists that encourages sliding fee scales. And I and I'm serious. I know. No, I get it. Yeah. It it just I I've never liked the way, particularly with fine art. Um, you know, I I am for the most part a fine art photographer and have done commercial work in the past. Um, but the world of art is just so um, elite and snooty and, you know, people want to sell a photograph for $2,500. And like, you know, I'm like, that's some people's rent for five months, you know, Mm -hmm. and I know it cost you $300 to produce that. So you could sell it for a thousand and still triple your profit. And yeah, you know, I, I got a hard time from some of my colleagues for, you know, Selling selling work at a lower price than I than I should have, but I, I felt like it was the right thing to do, and um, mm-hmm. I uh, yeah, the same same philosophy applies to my books. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit, the pricing thing, because when I said the sliding fee scale, the, the reason I said that, and that, and it's how I do my social work, and. I do a lot of stuff for free as well as stuff for low cost. But but what I also know is that there are people who have the ability to pay more. And every, in, in your case, every artist, you know, photographer, writer has this a huge amount of work in in terms of the effort and practice and learning and you know all this stuff that goes behind every piece of art photograph or book yeah. you know so there's this this huge immense investment of time and talent to create these things and there's real life which means living expenses and blah 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 totally and and I don't like the idea that for some people their senses that that it's if it doesn't have a high price tag on it, it's not very worthy. Or in general, that well, photography is not as artistic as this other thing, or this person whose name isn't known can't be as good as this person who's in a museum, or you know whatever the the devaluing Correct. of the creative process. And and I think that you know from talking to different artists, but also paralleling it to my own work. I think there's a there's an internal tension for the person who who's the one creating the work about what is really my value, which is different than who should be able to access what I have to offer. It's complicated. Totally, totally, it is complicated, and I, you know, I don't think most people. I've lived 
the majority of my life as an artist and, uh, you know, working side jobs on the side to make the rent when I didn't need to. And, you know, as I became more successful, you know, it, it's uh, people have a hard time. If you don't live the life of an artist, you don't understand how much work goes into it. And I think people think, oh, you're an artist. Like, God, you live the life. You sleep till one in the afternoon. You know, you know smoke weed all day. And like, what a life. And <laughs> the fact is, the, the fact yeah, is, that, would say, <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, exactly, exactly. Those people who smoke weed are horrible. They're terrible people. They're not good folks. They don't belong in this country. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no. God bless our attorney general. Satan bless him. Somebody bless him. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, the fact of the matter is that it's, it, it takes a tremendous amount of uh, willpower and self-structuring and uh, just motivation and belief in yourself to to produce art continually especially over a lifetime yeah make a living from it and, and you know and that's why again i go back to the poets and i give them such props because you know poetry like it or not like literature itself is a dying art form and no. writing is not <laughs> well you know i know i don't want to i don't want to say that but you know people are I don't know how many people have said to me, John, I really want to read your book, but I, and I love science fiction, but I just don't read. I can't remember the last time I read. And oh when, when is the Netflix series coming out? Yeah. And like, I hope soon, I hope soon, for, you know, um, because I'm, you know, I'm trying to, uh, I understand that. And that, that is what got me away from poetry is that, you know, nobody, Aside from poets and you know a few a select few of you know literary geeks really appreciate it, and yet no one realizes like how much time goes into poetry and how much effort and blood and sweat and tears literally go into making those life stories come true on the page in a way that is you know beautiful and compelling and enigmatic and so you know I think of all artists i I give I give poets a lot of shit just because I like to give people shit, but, um, <laughs> and they're poets and, you know, but at the same time, I, I am a poet and have been a poet and I, I give them a lot of shit in my book, but I also, you know, prominently and probably featured one of Jason Reberg's poems in my book. And, uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I, I just got to give it up to Jason because he, he of all of them, has been the most dedicated and the most fierce about his art form and his devotion to it. Yeah, I, I respect that. And getting back to your point about what the value of art is, you know, I, I think it is hard to quantify that, especially if you're not an artist. But um, my goal is just to be personally, is always just to be able to be comfortable. And, you know, if I want to buy a street taco, I want to have the money in my pocket to buy a street taco. But at the same time, you know, I'm very comfortable living in a working class neighborhood and, you know, having no garage and, you know, but I I would rather do that than sell something that I made for three hundred dollars for a five thousand percent markup. Um, because that's not the value in it to me. The value in it is the emotional response that the 
viewer gets um, or the reader gets or the listener gets to music, you know, that is the really transcendent value of art that can never uh-huh. be monetized or, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I guess everyone has to make that call on their own. No yeah. help at all, I am. <laughs> well, and, and, but even though it was not very comfortable, the the reminder from you know that photographer and with the next exhibit to yours at whatever show saying dude your pricing is killing me you know there is that part where where there is this kind of what are we establishing as the norm so right and and i have always i've always if there's one thing i've detested in my life marcia it is the norm um Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, and I, I, I did completely rebel in that regard, and I suppose I am too. I've had a lot of people be like, "Why are you giving your books away for free? This is crazy." And you know, I'm just like, I really don't think it is crazy. Um, I would rather get it out there and share it with people. And yeah, um, yeah. In this case, do it for free, and in the case of photography, do it for half or less of what other people are because I want to make it accessible and that's yeah. you know art art is for everyone and art is what at the end of the day art is what makes our civilization go and you know we live in these times where everyone's worried about nuclear war and is Donald, Donald Trump gonna you know destroy our souls and the answer is probably yes but you know in the meantime my barometer for my canary in the coal mine for how civilization is doing is how is the art doing in a specific town or a city or a country? You know, what is the art scene like? Because when artists are free to create and survive as artists, you know, that means the economy is doing well enough that people are willing to pay for inspiration and pay for things that take them other places. And so, you know, I, I I, I think artists are um, a little bit underappreciated at the end yes. of the day. Yes. It'd be interesting, and, and I realize that photography is, is not what you're doing at this moment, but it'd be no, we can talk about photography. We can talk about photography or the book or anything. Well, the pricing thing, but what I want to say, it'd be, it'd be interesting to have at an exhibit, at a, you know, whether it's an, an art show with multiple artists of different kinds of medium, et cetera, to have, have a best offer pricing and let people uh-huh. suggest what they would and could pay. Because I, then I go, I go to the other extreme, which is to me so offensive is so, okay, I live in Lawrence, Kansas, which is a university community. This is, the big, the early part of August, the university starts. There will be vendors on businesses on Main Streets, you know, like art for your apartment <laughs> and selling this crap. Now, I'm not talking totally. about artists selling their own stuff. I'm talking about mass-produced crap. No, I know, I know. Wall space, and it's like, okay, there's a place for that, but that's not what everybody's art is, anyway. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking about this stuff. And the book thing, you know, getting back specifically to your book series, you did mention that that there will be some cost, a reasonable cost, um, as opposed to an affordable cost is what I mean, for the, the books um, in the future. The first two of the six-part series are yeah. remain free. And ideally, people get intrigued and people are encouraged to... And yeah, to, that is... Yeah. 
I, I hope that, you know, I leave enough cliffhangers at the end of books one and two that, of course, people want to buy book three and they can buy book three for four ninety five. So yeah, technically they can get all three books for under five bucks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and there are authors, uh, you know, there's a platform, you know, fiction publishers and right now independent fiction publishers or writers, I should say, who are actually making a living um, writing over 50% of those people are publishing independently at this point. And it's kind of an unspoken silent um, transformation that's taking place in the publishing world where, you know, the traditional publishing houses for the first time in centuries ever no longer control the majority of the work that's being published and um, authors that are being paid. And it's, it's a cool time. And there are all, um, Smashwords is a big uh, online smashwords.com is a big online ebook aggregator. And they, a lot of authors on there allow people to do just what you were talking about um, with the sliding scale. And it's basically a tip situation where you can give as little as 50 cents or as much as, you know, $5 or $10 for the book or whatever you want to give. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's another cool way that as independent publishers, you have that right to do that and make those kinds of promotions and make that, make your book accessible in that way. And you just simply don't have that control if you're in a traditional publishing agreement. So yeah. yeah, it's cool because it's funny that one of the things I like to read in my husband, I think was surprised to learn this. I love to read the the Sunday New York Times book review section. Um, I love getting some ideas about some things to read that, you know, that I might want to find whether I'm going to buy them or go to the library or whatever. But but I really love the New York Times book review. And the most it, a couple weeks ago, three full pages, I think, of ads in that particular edition were ads of I think I think it was three columns of titles and brief you know descriptions of yeah. works that are self-published through three primary clearing houses and so I thought how cool is that you know and, and I'm sure there's some special arrangement that got people to be included in those ads but it was a great reminder of the variety of literature that's coming out and available in different ways, you know, and, and I thought, you know, the New York times is book review is this kind of historic, you know, traditional thing. And I'm totally probably a lot of people who read it probably are not of the, 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 well, I'm going to guess there are a lot of people of, of different generations and different styles of reading, I guess I'll just put it like that, who see this Absolutely. and might get exposed to that that notion of it doesn't have to be that author whose name you've seen for the past 15 years for it to be worth reading, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of reading, I think we're overdue to hear you read. How about that? Oh, you want to do that, or do you want to wait until after the after the break? Um, it sounds like maybe we could take the break now, just to make it easy, and then have you read, and then we don't have to think about. But when's the break need to go? <laughs> 
I can do that. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do that. We will take a short break. We will hear from a couple of the Lawrence, Kansas businesses. That's MonsterLawrenceHits.com. And I say thank you to Daniel Smith and his technology equipment. <laughs> Yay. Because that's what lets people hear what we're doing on this show. That's how you get to hear the conversations and the readings and whatever happens during a show. Because Daniel Smith and his technology stuff, that hardware and software, um, makes it available. So thank you so much, Daniel. And thank you, John Bidwell. And we will be right back. And as I say, John Bidwell, keep in mind, John Bidwell is the author, John Lee Grafton. Yes, we'll be back. Welcome back to Talk With Me with, now I'm going to call him the author, John Lee Grafton, because we're going to hear some of his words. So John, tell us about which book and let us hear a bit of it. I will do that. Um, this is out of book two, and I should say that in my future world that I have created in the 18th shadow, it's set in Lawrence, Kansas, 2082, and various socio-political and, uh, shall we say, natural disasters have occurred, and our society has changed in fairly drastic ways, and by this time, and alcohol has become prohibited again, and marijuana, however, is mainstream, and the government hands out little, essentially what are Soma tablets, they call them plesium, and if people feel paranoid, they just take plesium, and yeah, marijuana has become the mainstream drug of choice, and it is available everywhere today, everywhere in this world, just like alcohol is available in our, our world everywhere today. And so the heroes in my book are, of course, the guys who make the alcohol and they run the super still. And this scene I'm going to read is actually set in a speakeasy, which is located in my future fictional downtown Lawrence, um, basically where the tap room is down there at 8th and uh, New Hampshire. And um, the scene is there's a there's an organization called the Community Narcotics Enforcement Division, and they they encourage citizens to call in and report on anyone they might see who's using alcohol or suspected of using alcohol. And it's basically a a organization you can join that at this point in our history has become like a little bit of a militia. And so this kid is got in his way into the speakeasy and he thinks he's sitting down with the boss of the uh, Dax Abner who's my one of my primary characters who runs this fusion powered super still on a farm outside of Lawrence and produces 22,000 liters of vodka that he distributes all across America and he's the the biggest essentially moonshiner in town and he also happens to be a telepath so He's sitting in a private room with this snitch, Virgil, and they're having a conversation. What if, Dax asked, instead of being about the morality of alcohol use, the architect's motive was really controlling society itself? I don't get it, said Virgil. Vision's about harmonious drug use, the environment. It's what ended the old war on drugs. 
vision is kind of genius, really, if you think about it. Dax pursed his lips. Genius, yes, there's quite a surplus of that going around. What I'm asking, Mr. Benedict, is what you would do to combat the architect. If, in fact, his motive was shifting the very mindset of North American culture. Dax spun the black rodeo drive vapor joint in his fingers. To make people more passive, more malleable, open government to suggestion, what if he wants to control morality itself? What if alcohol prohibition is just a convenient means to that end? Virgil thought, this guy's a whack job. I want to see his slick face when like 50 CNED agents bust through his little hologram curtain. Virgil could feel his knee bouncing uncontrollably under the table. You think the architect's really trying to like mind meld people by what, making everyone believe it's their own idea booze is evil? When it's really just his? Something like that, said Dax through his teeth, letting a tight smile compose his features. Virgil stuck his lower lip out. Well, so what if he's right? I mean, maybe there's a good reason alcohol is illegal. It's a proven gateway drug. I knew this one kid in high school who got so drunk that, oh, for dog's sake, said Dax firmly, rolling his eyes. I've had quite enough. He removed his tinted glasses and set them on the table. Enough of what? asked Virgil, sipping his vodka and peering over the rim of his glass at this man's exposed yellow eyes. Put that glass down, said Dax. Virgil found that he couldn't look away. His body was frozen, except for the hand that had just lowered the glass to the tabletop. A warm, intoxicating feeling flooded down his spine, like taking ten plesium at once. He felt high and lucid. His knee stopped bouncing. All that mattered was the beautiful man sitting across the table from him. Okay, he managed to say, grinning foolishly. Dax leaned back and engaged his vapor joint with newfound glee as he spoke. Virgil Benedict, repeat after me. I am a wretched, sobbing cunt of a human being. Virgil responded immediately. I am a wretched, wretched, sobbing cunt of a human being. A microderm the size of a ping-pong ball emerged from the wall by Dax's head and floated over until it was in front of Virgil. A red light on the drone's pub belly turned green, indicating that a hollow recording had started. Very good, said Dax, as his jet-black pupils dilated further, crushing away the tiger yellow. Now that it's on the record, called look at the drone on the end on my command, repeat the following. Citizens of Lawrence. My name is Virgil Benedict, and I am a Sinead snitch. I'm a gormless knob of a young man, bloody useless, really. Virgil felt a stab of fear rise as Dax went on, but he was unable to move. Only listened to the mesmerizing voice, saying, Furthermore, I apologize sincerely to those Jayhawks among you who have been forced to experience behavioral modification as a result of my epic lack of testicles. Lastly, into Sinead agent special, Sinead special agent Bubba Sparks, I would especially like to say, go toss yourself, you blubbering heap of rat's vomit. I now work for the other side. And Bob's my uncle. Virgil was sitting straight up, a tear in the corner of his eye. There was no warm, fuzzy sensation. The fear was now all-consuming. He could form no thoughts, only sense the grave horror of realizing this man heard every thought he had. His teeth were chattering. His knee had begun bouncing spasmodically. Dax leaned forward onto his elbows and squinted slowly, making the boy twist his head at the same angle as his own like a marionette. It's not much fun, is it? said Dax. The terror of knowing you're no longer in control. Dax clenched his teeth. Knowing. 
that you have no privacy, that every single thought you have is the property of someone else. He slammed his fist on the table and yelled furiously, Answer me, slave! Yes, stuttered Virgil, saliva burbling over his lower lip, one eye going bloodshot. Please, he managed. It hurts. You're hurting me. I'm sorry. Bloody fucking right, said Dax as he leaned back and regained his composure, again puffing the vapor joint. With the flick of a wrist, he added, All right, Virgil, your fear is gone. Clean that tear from your eye. You feel fine. Stop being such a sally. Virgil fell back under the booth, wiping his face and relaxing into a smile once again as the warm, comfortable feeling consumed him. He knew he'd just been afraid, but he could not remember why. Maybe. <laughs> Wow, John. <laughs> so that, yeah, that's a nice, uh, I chose that scene because it, it shows, there's a lot of, a lot of my book's uh, popularity has come from the fact that it has cyborgs in it and these cyborg Rottweilers protect the fusion still and can run 150 miles an hour and shoot lasers from their mouths and shoot through brick walls and do stuff like that. And there's, I, I would describe it somewhat as action science fiction, um, but action dystopian, utopian science fiction, perhaps. But yeah, um, there are other people with powers and one of them is, uh, yeah, Dax, the big boss who has telepathic abilities and he's having none of it. Yeah. Wow. And somehow in all of the mix of things that you shared and, and what we were talking about before, it, it appears to me that, that this is an assignment for Brandon Whitehead to build something that is from one of your books, at least. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. I am waiting for that robot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like. The day the Brandon Whitehead 1.1 rolls off the assembly line will be a great day for me. Because <laughs> first I went to action figures, you know, little, little, um, yeah. you know, yeah. And then it was like, no, it needs to be, it needs to be a fine art robot that Brandon has created. <laughs> and no one knows robots better. Yeah, Seriously. cool. So, so I can't even imagine what it takes to create this storyline that continues to grow because you have to keep track of all these things, right? So that when somebody gets to, to book four, there are things that, that are related to book one, right? Absolutely. And the timeline jumps all over the place. Wow. And it's, you know, I, I, try to write it in short, short sections so you could read it for five minutes and put it down and, or you could read it for five hours and put it down. Um, but uh -huh. it, it's written up and even if it's a long chapter, that chapter has natural breaks about every 10 minutes or so. And so uh -huh. I, I've intentionally tried to write it for the, uh, the modern schedule and attention span. Yeah. For those friends who say they don't read, for example. <laughs> yeah. You know, but wait, the, the, try the, it. You might like it. <laughs> the other end of the argument is that, you know, I've got, I, I do have a lot of people who just love the ebook, you know, and mm -hmm. they have, they're walking around with 5,000 books on their phone yeah. and they just love that. And 
so I'm trying to trying to stay in trying to stay up trying to stay up with the times and it seemed like the ebook was the way to go yeah. first and foremost. Um yeah. here's my question. Tell tell a little yeah. bit not don't give away your secrets, but just a little bit about how how you do this process of sort of keeping track of key events that are gonna you know that that shifting timetable that happens in timeline that happens in your book do you how do you how do you keep track of it as you're on this path of six books well i got to the end of i'm writing book four right now which will hopefully be out in the spring and i i got to a point about halfway through book two where i realized i just needed to create my own private timeline of events and okay. you know just to keep everything straight because there are little nuances it's one of those things that i have friends who have gone back and read it twice and mm-hmm. it's definitely a series where they're like oh my god i enjoyed it so much more the second time i picked mm-hmm. up so much more because there is a lot of there's a lot of hidden detail and nuance and characters who appear and you don't know that who they are when they appear early in the book and then they show up later on. But yeah, I, I just had to create a fairly extensive background storyboard and um, timeline to just keep it all straight in my head after, because mm-hmm. after a while, it, I thought it was going to be one book and, you know, I quickly realized that there was more to say than one book and that turned into two and then that turned into three and then, yeah, that turned into six. Yeah. And so the 18th shadow, you're, you're firm. It's going to be six books. We'll get to what it needs to get to. Yeah, I've got you, it. I've got it. Yeah. You need a little so bit of a map be- to make sure that you're, that you're keeping some significant threads in. Yeah. Sort of and just make sure that. Events, yeah. Yeah. Make sure that dates make sense and that everything basically just makes sense that somebody wants to dive deep. And I know that there are, our readers who get into the minutia of things and want to make sure that every little number and date lines up. And I got a lot of help from my editor. Um, give her props, Tardane. She lives out in uh, Garden City, Kansas, and there's a fantastic editor, and she helped me a lot with that. Um, uh-huh. She's also a painter and has a an artist, and uh, but is a fantastic editor and has an extremely logical methodical mind and she found a lot of things that she caught a lot of things that i did not catch mm-hmm. and i'm extremely grateful to her yeah and i appreciate that as a reader i will say i i had the experience of reading a book that was it's actually a young adult book and i was reading it for uh, being part of a discussion at our local library uh and i it had some this happens and this happens and th- because this happens, this happens, you know, that kind of chain of event things, right. but the book went back and forth in time and there was a particular chapter that I believe should have been edited and changed in some ways because the presentation of that chapter didn't fit with how the sequence, it, it was sort of like they went back in time and changed this thing and it happened this way, but it's like, then this other stuff wouldn't have happened. So the whole premise of your book is goofed up and it's annoying yes. me. <laughs> right. And if you ever get to that, you know, and that's, that is 
this is something I really tried to, you know, take this seriously. And I, that's why it took three and a half years to do this and, you know, editing it down from the 1200 page disaster that I had to, <laughs> you know, the 796 page trilogy that it is now. And, uh-huh. um, it took a lot of time. It took 14 personal edits after the, um, first three were written and then it went off to the copy editor and for that very reason because she caught so much stuff that I think is just the reader you're, or the writer you're just too close to it and yeah. you can read it as many times as you want but you're just not going to pick up on those things that an objective third pair of eyes will yeah. or second pair of eyes will and, but yeah I believe just like my photography going back to that you know I always tried to have the exact same quality, if not better, of product in terms of a print or a canvas that I would sell. Um, and I want the same as the guy next door to me who's selling it for more. And I want to likewise have the same quality of science fiction book. And that means editing and time. And, you know, I'm going to, uh, coming up in future versions of the first of all three books uh, for future digital versions, I'm working with an illustrator to do an entire character series and that will appear in the digital version um, opening up and it will say humans and cyborgs appearing in this publication. And that'll be a neat little interactive thing that people can flip through um, before they actually start reading the books. And um, it's not something I have to do, but it's something I just want to do to kind of yeah, make my book as professional and compelling as possible. And uh-huh. I think if you're going to do anything from mopping a floor to being an artist, you should, you know, try and put everything you have into it. Yeah. So how do you turn your brain off from focusing on that book to other stuff? You know what I mean? Like, cause uh, I can imagine a part of you would be 24-7 awake and dreaming about what's happening completely yeah there's not there's not been a night for the last four years that i had not gone to sleep thinking about basically writing scenes in my head and writing a story in my head as i go to sleep um and i expect that to be the case for the next couple of years unfortunately so i'm fairly just deep i'm trying to absorb myself as deeply into my artificial reality as I can without getting myself <laughs> without getting myself locked up in a mental hospital. No. Let's keep it real. But uh, so, so what do you do? Like, like I, it's interesting because last night I was sending a note to people who participate in the support group that I do for people with suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts. And that sounds really serious and it is, but also so, so, and I, and I started the the note with a picture, a photograph, a little photograph from my phone of the kayak that my husband bought that he and I and our dog Bo are, are beginning kayakers going out to Lone Star Lake, a very small uh-huh. call. Like, and, and, but my point was I, I, put the the photo in the message and I put the hashtag new experiences and I started the message with, you know, we all need things that we do that distract us from those kinds of worries and thoughts that we have. 
and learning to do something new takes a lot of attention. And that's a great way to have some fun and get a break. So what are, what are some things that you do? Cause you do have to turn it off sometimes. What are, what are some things that you do that take your attention and get you, you know, that break to refresh, you know, and, and it could, there are kinds of things it could be, but things you feel comfortable saying to the public. <laughs> yes. Yes, of course. Of course. Um, you know, I spend a lot of my downtime when I, when I can, when my, my girlfriend works and my girlfriend, Tiana, and she's fabulous and uh, puts up with all of my obsessive artistic ways. But yeah, when, when she gets home at the end of the day, I definitely try and just spend some time with her and the cat and go for a walk and mm-hmm. um, yeah, chill out with my family. And I also like recreationally, I really don't like to do a whole lot. So I, I will go out and play pool and get my mind off things. And aside from that, um, live music has always been the thing that okay. is sure to get me out of the house. Uh-huh. Are you a gym guy, runner, those kinds of things? I do like to go to the gym. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess you could call me a gym rat. Um, uh-huh. I just feel like the staying in relative fitness. Um, my, uh, Body is certainly no temple, but I uh, do try and stay in relative shape, and I I feel like that helps me. Uh, yeah, it, it it helps me stay energized through the day and stay motivated. I I also think there's a strong correlation between physical health and mental clarity, and so yeah, I do I do go to the gym. Because I think all those that we all whoever we are, we need to have things that we do and and new things that we try that really do give us a break from the pressures of real life or else we will become so exhausted and overwhelmed that we aren't able to really be very functional totally in any aspect of our life you know and so it's not about you know everybody must do what john does it's it's about everybody think about you know what you are doing and maybe if it's time to add something new and engaging because we all need that. There's a there's a quote that I love from um, Audre Lorde, who is an African American lesbian feminist, all kinds of advocacy person who who was also mm-hmm. somebody who died of cancer. And and the little quote is, "Self care is a political action." You know that 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 reminder that it's not it's not this indulgency thing. It's not selfishness. It's it's energizing ourselves and it, when we don't do that we got nothing for anybody absolutely and yeah. i completely i could not agree with that more and if you if you throw yourself into any endeavor artistic or otherwise you know with too much fervor and too much obsession and burnout then you start producing work that's substandard so i think the importance of taking a step back and just small enough smelling the roses is cannot be overstated. Yeah. And if you're a person who's allergic to roses, then do something else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Smell the honeysuckle. Um, <laughs> pick a flower. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we all need that stuff. We all need something because you, you put it in terms of, you know, you won't be able to do your art, but you won't be able to do your life very well in general if you aren't periodically doing some things to refresh. You know, and it's not absolutely 
it, it can't all be um, chemically. Well, I think it's the life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it can't be chemically induced all the time. You know, it's uh, contrary to the book. <laughs> a little, oh yeah, a, a little chemical induction doesn't hurt. Um, certainly, I'm not going to say that it does, but I, yeah, I think it's generally whether whether it's in experience um, motivated by chemicals or motivated by whatever it is, you know, I think it's good for all of us to just get away from the screen, turn off the phone, and yeah. go outside and stand under the stars and realize what an amazing, beautiful, you know, planet we live on. Yeah. And yeah, just take a break and do what you like and eat some barbecue or, you know, ride a horse or do whatever you love that gets your mind off. Yeah. Um, Get your mind off work. I mean, getting your mind off work is part of what makes work better when you get back yeah. to it. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned was music and not just going out to live music, but but the fact that you started playing the piano a few years ago and composing yes. music. You know? So that's that's one of to me, that's one of those kinds of things where it takes totally. attention to do that. And it's attention that doesn't allow everything else in the world to interfere. You know, those those thoughts about other stuff have to stop for a while while you focus on this new thing that you're doing, which is really powerful. Right. Yeah. And I find the same is true. Of, the same is true of exercise. You have to be there and you have to be present or you're going to drop a weight on your foot. I was just thinking the and same so, thing. Yeah, there is a danger there. <laughs> a little <Yes>. bit. <laughs> a little bit. So Do not attention. go to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you've recently induced your uh, present state with chemicals, do not go to the gym, <laughs> is my advice. <laughs> Wait, I'm trapped under this bar. Too bad, dude. <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> exactly. So speak a little bit directly about the like current times as a motivator in your writing. You know, and, and I know that because I can't remember exactly what you said when you were starting out about that. But clearly, you know, what's going on in the world is informing this series, you know, that, that the shadow is evolving as as you're watching and interpreting real time world events. Absolutely. And, I, you know, it's really um, it, it's really about two things. One, you know, my, my love of science fiction and artificial intelligence and that sort of thing, you know, questions, greater questions of the meaning of life in the universe. But um, on a more practical level, it's drawing on the barbarity of the drug war that we are currently in. And um, especially for me, it's prevalent because of the selection of our our good friend Jeff Sessions as Attorney General and his belief that smoking marijuana is one short one step short of doing heroin and he has said as much and you know has also And if he said, was listening to reason he would go, Oh, actually the problem is people go to doctors and get painkillers and then get addicted to those. This is much more dangerous. Right. <laughs> and however however in in Jeff Sessions' mind, he ties the, and has made this statement also, that he, he sees the rise of the opioid epidemic as a direct result of medical marijuana becoming that prevalent. Standard. And that is, wrong. It is That is contradicted by 
data, but they don't care about that. But never mind. I'm interrupting you. I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. It is it is completely it is completely stupid and it's completely um contradicted by all kinds of data. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's an unjust system. It's uh it's the the, the war on drugs is, you know, ninety five percent of those arrests are, you know, marijuana related even in 2017 and it tears up families and it um really harms the it being the social legal structure system, not the use yeah, of it, yeah it just it harms the social structure of america and you know i i love my country and i i do believe in the freedoms that it offers you know um and yeah i just uh I wanted to find a way to talk about the drug war that was not just like, dear friends, the drug war is a bad thing. Here's why. You know, I wanted to do something with a little more nuance and a little more fun. And so I, you know, I just flipped society on its head and created a society where, you know, imagine alcohol being prohibited and everyone is a, who likes to drink a glass of wine at night is the criminal. And what what living in that society would be like, yeah. um, just to try and you know because I have a lot of friends who don't partake of marijuana, but it's hard to explain to them you know what is so unjust about it unless you you know live in a state where you're living in fear of you know going to prison or having your yeah. you know having your family taken away from you because you choose to you know partaking a dis- different substance than nicotine, alcohol, or caffeine, which are yeah. basically the three recreational drugs that our fine government has put on the table at the moment. Yeah. And so, yeah, that is, that's really the inspiration for it. And, yeah, the 18th shadow is a reference to the 18th Amendment, which was the original prohibition um, amendment. And I think that really the drug war began in a lot of ways with prohibition and using morality as a barometer to define what drugs are good and what drugs are bad. And, um, you know, so the point of my, the point of the title is that, you know, we are living in the shadow of the amendment to this day, whether we are conscious of it or not. Very good. I appreciate you explaining that because it was one of those things like, what what is that 18th thing? Perfect. <laughs> we have actually reached the end of our hour. Bummer. Fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> and so in ending, number one on my mind is please tell people again how to find your books. Okay. The website is the easiest one. Just John, and that's John with no H. So it's J O N Lee Grafton books.com john lee grafton books.com or they can just look up john lee grafton on amazon or um facebook i'm on facebook and try and keep my facebook updated almost every day um with relevant science articles and stories from the future and uh, <laughs> all of that good stuff very good and so right now you have two of the books, the first two of six, that are available for free. And the fourth one is the one that's in progress. Is that right? 
fourth is in progress. The first three books are available, and yeah, the first two are free, and then the third one, Absorption, is the longest and the most action-packed of the three currently, and it is four ninety-five. All right, so so it's not a hundred percent free, but four ninety-five. Considering that you first read those first books for free, do it. Yeah, it's intriguing. It'll be delightful. Reading can be one of those things that takes you away from your personal day-to-day thoughts, worries that you need to get away from to refresh so you can take action in all those good ways that you need to. And I'm very serious about that. That's reading to me, and it's different for different people, I'm sure, but reading to me is more engaging than watching something on a screen. You know, my mind is creating those images from those words and hearing those voices and all that stuff, it, it takes a, a concentration. It, it, it's a much more engaged way for me to, to get stories, et cetera. So I'm a, I'm a big advocate for reading and, and, and then appreciate that you can read these books for free. And I'm sure there are all those great ways for you to share reviews, comments, spread the word, encourage people to know about this and to keep watching for the upcoming book four, five, and six of the Shadow by author John Lee Grefton. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Marcia. It's really been a pleasure. Mine too. And so long to our listeners.